Good morning. Welcome back to those of you who were here yesterday, and welcome to those who are here for the first time. Uh, I hope you brought your thinking caps with you. We have a, a uh, day of, of thoughtful uh, papers and commentaries. Um, I uh, have the distinct honor of introducing the first speaker of the day, uh, Professor John Finnis. Uh, it doesn't seem fair that he has the shortest bio in the program. Uh, it, it doesn't do him uh, a justice. Uh, professor Finnis uh, is a professor at, uh, at Oxford, where he's taught for many, many years jurisprudence, law, and legal philosophy. And he's the uh, Biocchini family professor at the University of Notre Dame Law School. Um, he uh, is, uh, uh, I guess, famous in academic circles for a book that was uh, first published in, in 1980, Natural Law and Natural Rights, uh, which uh, continues to inspire uh, reflection, uh, attract uh, followers and friends, uh, uh, annoy a number of others, uh, but it's, it's an important book because of its analytic uh, rigor and philosophic depth, uh, and it, it put back on the table, really, uh, where uh, a table that had been clean of this sort of thing for quite a while. It put back on the table the question of, um, of whether uh, there are uh, uh, standards of right that are independent of human will, uh, accessible by human reason, uh, and by which we can take the measure of the free acts of social and political beings like ourselves. Uh, I think he did uh, the jurisprudential and philosophic world a great service uh, with that book, and he, it has, uh, he has continued to work on themes that we find in that book uh, and has, has gone beyond them. Uh, uh, writing very important essays on uh, 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 ethical uh, and moral dilemmas uh, in light of this question of uh, standard of uh, right and wrong um, that uh, 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 can guide our actions. So I'm, I'm just, it's just my great pleasure to be able to introduce to you today uh, Professor John Finnis. Thank you very much. Well, the identification, as I tried to do it in Natural Law and Natural Rights, the identification of human flourishing's basic aspects can be made and can be defended against objections and misunderstandings without appealing to any idea of divine causality, still less to any idea of a divine will about what we should or should not choose. The inquiry into human flourishing can proceed without adverting to the question of divine existence. 
the good of relating appropriately to a transcendent and intelligent source of everything we know of can be postulated without being affirmed, can be left, that's to say, in a kind of space in the account of human flourishing to be occupied by the good we call religion if further inquiry shows that such a being must be judged to exist. In this way, the inquiry into the principles of practical understanding that direct us towards the basic aspects of human flourishing and the inquiry into the rational requirement that one remain open in all one's deliberation and choice to the directiveness of each of those first principles and likewise the inquiry into the implications of that requirement, (coughs) implications we call morality, can all be pursued rather as the natural sciences can be without adverting to that further question, the question whether the fact that all these principles are true and the fact that we have the capacity to recognize that and to shape ourselves and the world accordingly, whether those facts can be explained only and should be explained as effects of a causality that by reason of what its causa is, needs no further explanation. That further question could be postponed to the end, or at least to the end of my books on the matter, and obviously if its answer were positive, the implications would need taking up and being given their due importance in due course. The decision to structure my books that way was in some respects methodologically motivated. The study of metaphysics, of the foundations of all knowing and being, properly comes last, as Thomas Aquinas says, adopting what he takes surely rightly to be the position of philosophy's architectonic metaphysician and methodologist Aristotle. But my procedure was also an exercise in what John Henry Newman, following the Alexandrian church fathers of the third century AD, called economy, the adapting of exposition to the receptiveness, the state of mind of one's expected audience. This idea of economy in this, in this sense of the term has got a bad name. A recent head of an Oxford college when he was secretary of the cabinet and head of the United Kingdom Civil Service was pilloried unmercifully for testifying that he thought it proper in the interest of the state sometimes to be economical with the truth. And Newman himself, of course, was given occasion to write his famous Apologia Pro Vita Sua by widely applauded accusations of dishonesty made by Charles Kingsley because that best-selling children's author and cleric equated economy, as Newman used the term, with deviousness, evasion, deception. But from the outset of his teaching, Newman had insisted on the line separating those vices of dishonesty from a rightly discreet stewardship of the truth, oikonomia veritatis, by presenting always what is true, withholding no more of the relevant truth than the ignorance or prejudices of one's hearers would prevent them from properly understanding and assessing. 
And my procedure in, in leaving the question of God to the end of my books, Natural Law, Natural Rights and, and, and Aquinas, was less economical, I would say, than the decision of my mentor and editor of Natural Law, Natural Rights, H.L.A. Hart, his decision to leave undisclosed in all his public work his own atheism and his vigorous doubts that there are any moral truths whatever. After all, chapter 13 of Natural Law, Natural Rights is right there in the hands of every reader of the book with its argument pursued over some pages that the further question of the origin of everything we come to acknowledge can only be answered reasonably by judging that God exists and that God's intelligent and necessarily free choice to create is that needed explanation. Practicing a similar economy even more strenuously in my book Aquinas, I abstracted from, passed over in silence, the great theologian's theological concerns and foundations until again the last chapter where I set out a version of each of the five kinds of ways of posing and pressing the further question, ways which he rightly thinks show that it is unreasonable not to judge that the universe as a whole and in every aspect is the effect of the creative action of a being that is pure actuality, free from every shadow of mere potentiality, a reality whose what it is includes that it is, a being with all the uncaused and necessary existence that the entire universe would lack even if it happened to have existed from eternity, a being whose projection of some of its own intelligent intelligibility into the universe that it has freely, from among all alternative possible universes, brought into being an actuality. As I said, the causing, ordering, and sustaining of the universe must therefore be an intellectual act, which in one and the same timeless act both projects by practical understanding and effects by willing in every detail this world with all its causal explanatory systems, its unimaginable galaxies, subatomic particles, and fundamental forces, a world, too, of genomes, cells, and brains, of mathematics and logic, which even without aspiring to logic and mathematics, which even without aspiring to fit that world, a world of loyalty, justice, and remorse, of computers, symphonies, chess, and constitutions. In my book on Aquinas, from which I've just been quoting, I turn from that point to try to explicate in barest outline how these conclusions affect the understanding of the ethical and political principles and virtues explored in the preceding 11 chapters. Again, let me quote just a snatch from this explication. The principles of practical reasonableness are now, in the light of this uh, affirmation and judgment of the existence of God, now understandable as having the force and depth of a kind of sharing in God's creative purpose and providence. The good of practical reasonableness is now understandable as good not only intrinsically and for its own sake, but also as a constituent in the good of assimilatio, making oneself like 
and adhesio uniting oneself to the omnipotent creator's practical wisdom and choice. The truth of the practical principles is now understandable not only as the anticipation of the human fulfillment flourishing to which they direct us, but also as their conformity to the most real of all realities, the divine creative mind, the mind which is nothing other than the very reality of that pure and simple act, God. Well, there's a lot more to be said along these lines, but there are two points to be made here now this morning about what's going on in these and similar discussions. The first is that the whole course of reflection heading towards the reasonable judgment that God exists and is relevant to understanding more adequately why our responsibilities matter, all that is an exercise in public reason. The second is that the argument's conclusion entails that neither atheism nor radical agnosticism is entitled to be treated as the, as we now say, default position in public reason, deliberation, and decisions. Those who say or assume that there is a default position and that it is secular in those senses, atheism or agnosticism about atheism, owe us an argument that engages with and defeats the best arguments for divine causality. Only if some counter-argument of this kind were successful would they be entitled to set aside the judgment of the countless many who, even when they could not articulate formal arguments, <coughs> have been able to judge that the reality and intelligibility of this world has been brought and is kept from nothingness by something that utterly transcends it and whose glory, in the psalmist's words, is declared by the heavens the heavens being the part of this world we most easily contemplate for what it is without mixing in our own concerns with using or relating to it. Still, public reason's deliberative practical part does deal with matters that concern us because, unlike God, they could be brought into being, changed or averted by our choice and action. These are the deliberations for which the principles understood in practical reason, of natural law, if you like, give their directions, their prescriptions. The purpose of all the earlier chapters in those books of mine was to show how moral rules and principles, not least those we use more or less uncontroversially throughout our law, are explicable by reference to the more general and first principles of intelligent thinking about what to do taken along with a sound and exact understanding of what, what kind of act one elects to do when one has deliberatively shaped alternative proposals for action and made one's choice by adopting one of them. The common objection to this whole idea, natural law, is that it fails because the principles it identifies command none of the consensus that say good science confidently expects and commonly gets. The objection uses the fact of pluralism as an argument for skepticism about natural law, but really, therefore, about all ethical propositions. And the objection is invalid. The truth of ethical claims is assessed not by looking to facts such as people's agreement 
or disagreement with them, but by considering whether they correctly identify how the kind of action or abstention from action in issue relates to the well-being of human persons, human flourishing, and whether it rightly evaluates that relationship. The standards of rightness and wrongness in such assessments are identified in the reflective, critically clarified, practical understanding and reasoning we call ethics. Consensus around these standards is not what makes them true and is not a necessary condition of that truth in any sense save this, that under ideal epistemic conditions, there would be consensus around them. For consensus on a proposition's truth under ideal conditions is a mark, not a criterion, of that truth. But the conditions, of course, under which any and every moral proposition is in fact assessed are very far from ideal. We have strong emotional interests in securing certain outcomes which would be blocked by any reasonable ethical standard. Our capacity to devise rationalizations for departing from reasonable ethical standards to secure those interests is very great. The tendency for language, institutions, and culture to crystallize around such plausible, albeit unreasonable, rationalizations is very strong, resulting in local but perhaps widespread and rather lasting subscription tending towards consensus even on distorted standards and ethical falsehoods. The pluralism of ethical opinions about more or less specific kinds of action is precisely the kind of diversity one would expect, even though there is some impressive cons consensus on the more general principles. <coughs> the past 40 years have provided illuminatingly clear examples of the way in which the descent from high-level general principles to specific moral rules and judgments is waylaid by emotions, mixed motives, and rationalization. <coughs> Even in the mid-1960s, after 80 years of passionate feminist campaigning about birth control as a necessary alleviation of the difficulties and dangers faced by women in and after pregnancy, the idea that a mother has a right moral or legal, to choose to seek the death of the child she has conceived was virtually unheard of, had no perceptible presence in the literature, and had been implicitly or explicitly repudiated as unethical and unacceptable by main leaders among the feminist advocates of birth control. But then, within 10 years, the idea had become, as it remains, a commonplace for many albeit without consensus about its basis or limits. Yet it remained, and remains in the view of many others, a simply false claim of right. To me, its acceptance seems a paradigm instance of the process by which moral truth becomes obscured and a vivid illustration of the way that non-ideal epistemic conditions block the attainment or retention of consensus on moral propositions. But there are plenty of other paradigmatic instances. In my book with Joseph Boyle and Germain Griset on nuclear deterrence, we trace the historical process on which a consensus that civilians should not be intentionally selected for destruction was lost, and the moral truth considerably, though by no means wholly obscured, under the non-ideal epistemic conditions prevailing in Europe in 1941 
and in the Pacific in 1945. But of course, epistemic conditions are never ideal, even in the natural sciences and mathematics, where ambitions, fears, uncriticized conventions and assumptions and other such factors can and do distort rational inquiry and judgment, all the more so in moral reasoning. Moral reasoning always, as I've said, concerns premises and conclusions, principles and judgments that are liable to affect profoundly our interests and the passions, strong or calm, whose objects are wrapped up in those interests. And the impact of familial, local and national conventions and prejudices is particularly formative of the elements with which we conduct our moral reasoning. So, though by no means impossible, it's hard to think soundly about moral matters, not least about the issues that do not concern the forms of human good, but rather the makeup and dignity of human persons or the proper description of human acts, issues that, though not in themselves practical, normative or ought questions, nevertheless directly enter into and affect moral judgments. Now, I shall say, if one consistently sound moral thought is difficult to achieve and maintain. And two, at the same time, it is the case that the moral principles which are the criteria of moral soundness and unsoundness are, like every other intelligibility that we find not make, to be attributed to the wisdom and will of a divine creator, as the arguments I sketched earlier indicate they should, then, three, it's reasonable to anticipate that this supremely intelligent creator of less adequate intelligences like ours might communicate those same moral principles in a way that renders them more clearly accessible and more palpably warranted. And that anticipation is satisfactorily met, fulfilled as one aspect of the public revelation in Jesus the Christ. So the issue at the heart of my reflections today is the status of pub public revel revelation in public reason. <coughs> revelation of God's nature and intentions for us is public in the focal sense when it is offered in public preaching attested to by signs or miracles such as resurrection, otherwise inexplicable healing, fulfillment of prophecies, and so forth. But the evidentiary force of these is immeasurably enhanced, perhaps even dependent upon, the further fact that the teaching to whose authenticity they are meant to attest, a teaching by word and deed, is itself morally attractive. As I once summarized Aquinas, the revelatory power and creditworthiness of Christ's teaching should be ascribed also to, besides miracles and other public signs, also to his persuasive authority and manifest personal virtue and the inherent excellence of what he taught, something he deliberately left to be judged from the public preaching and writing of those who had witnessed his own public life and works. Unquote. In other words, we bring to our hearing of the preaching and assessment of its teachers and witnesses our prior understanding of human good, an understanding that is, as I have argued, at root our natural reason. And we use that as a criterion in judging for ourselves the authenticity, 
the divine origin of what is being proposed and displayed to us. Yet, in turn, the preaching, the witness, and the exemplary lives of the teachers can and do change our prior, prior moral understanding, enhancing and correcting it. There is then a reciprocity and a certain kind of epistemic interdependence of natural reason and divine public revelation, heading towards a kind of reflective equilibrium, as Rawls might say. That reflective equilibrium is not in all respects a once-for-all achievement, but rather is to some extent developmental, both in the life of the believer and in the, and in the teaching of the community established to bear the historical revelation through history. This doesn't exclude the making of definitive judgments by those with authority to make them, but the implications of even such definitive judgments and the meaning and implications of the rest of the revealed message come to be understood more adequately. Experience provides the matter for more differentiated insights into the principles of practical reason, as well as into the data of revelation and the doctrine that rests upon and transmits revelation. A fine example of this process of developing reflective equilibrium is provided by the Second Vatican Council's Declaration on Religious Liberty of 1965, this document, which amply repays deep study, identifies some of the soundest and steadiest foundations of the public square and much more. It often goes by the first two words of its Latin text, dignitatis humanae, of the dignity of the human person. <coughs> its core teaching can be stated quite shortly. All persons have a right, as individuals and as groups, not to be coerced by government, either to perform or not to perform religious acts. This right is fully held even by people who hold false religious beliefs, indeed even by individuals or groups who have formed their own religious beliefs without due care for truth. It is limited only by the needs of public order that is, by the need to protect the rights of others and uphold public peace and public morality. The document divides its consideration of the right into two parts. The first defines, explicates, and justifies the right by reference to natural reason or natural law alone. The second shows how it is rooted in Christian revelation and doctrine. The principal justifying argument from natural reason is this. So important is it for each human being to seek, find, and live according to the truth about God and man, religious truth, that coercion which prevents, distorts, or tends to render inauthentic that, that search for religious truth is wrongful. The wrong done is a wrong, wronging of the person whose search for truth, had there been no coercive pressure to conform, might have been authentic and centered on truth about the most important things, at least as an aspiration, ideal, or goal. So that person, and thus any person, has the right, claim right in her field in terms, correlative to the government's duty not to commit that wrong. And all this reinforces the document's further justifying argument, which recalls the classic Christian distinction between the secular and the ecclesial, and the idea already coming to flower in Aquinas of limited state government Religious matters as such transcend the sphere of the state, and so, quote, it would, be, it would clearly transgress the limits set to the state's power 
were it to presume to command or inhibit religious acts, unquote. The principal argument from Revelation is this. God created human beings with the dignity, the elevated status of rationality and freedom and adds to that dignity by inviting all to share the divine life as his sons and daughters, an invitation which, for all who can choose, can only be fittingly accepted by a fully voluntary response. As the document goes on, redeemed by Christ the Saviour, and through Christ Jesus called to be God's adopted son or daughter, one cannot give one's adherence to God revealing himself unless, under the drawing of the Father, one offers to God the reasonable and free submission of faith. It is therefore completely in accord with the nature of faith that in matters religious, every kind of human coercion is to be excluded. The document treats as foundational for its newly accented teaching the historically continuous Catholic doctrine that no one can rightly be coerced into the faith, into the faith. Quote, it is one of the major tenets of Catholic doctrine that one's response to God in faith must be free. No one, therefore, is to be forced to embrace the Christian faith against his or her own will. This doctrine is contained in the word of God and it was constantly proclaimed by the fathers of the church. In the life of the people of God, as it has made its pilgrim way through the vicissitudes of human history, there has at times appeared a way of acting that was hardly in accord with the spirit of the gospel or even opposed to it. Nevertheless, the doctrine of the church that no one is to be coerced into faith has always stood firm. Unquote. The underlying thought is this. Reflection on historical experience leads the church's teachers and members to the judgment that that doctrine, faith is not to be coerced, or its rationale, has wider implications. The authenticity and reality of the search for religious truth and of the act of faith in which that search under ideal epistemic and volitional conditions would end, are so prejudiced by threats of coercion that coercive measures for the sake of religious truth, whatever their apparent success, are self-stultifying and in opposition to the nature of human persons because they are willy-nilly in opposition to the flourishing of human persons in one of its basic and most overarchingly <coughs> important aspects, the willing and thus whole person shaping adhesio, adhesion to clinging to God. The natural law version, and so one might say the economical version of the Council's teaching, is in the first part of the document, as I said. The fully explanatory version, on the other hand, is in the second, or rather, it's in the two parts taken together in the achieved equilibrium. Is the second part necessary? Can't natural law and natural rights be affirmed confidently without the benefit of revelation? That's a question that I began to answer when I was pointing to the humanly necessary interdependence of natural reason and revelation. Consider, for example, equality. That human beings are radically equal in dignity is entailed by the revelation that we are all made in God's image and are called as sons and daughters into his household in the transcendent kingdom. Can we have much confidence that without benefit of those revealed teachings, this radical equality would have been steadily understood and affirmed 
practically, that is, precisely as ground for true entitlement of all to equality in basic rights, or that it will be long maintained if they are set aside, if the revealed teachings are set aside. I don't think so. We can't have much confidence. Without those revelatory insights or confirmations of insight into our nature and our potential destiny, people, even people who understand human consciousness and character with the immense penetration of a Plato, gravitate towards some version of views that treat dignity as variable, waxing and waning, predicable of us at some time after the start of one's existence as a human being, perhaps at or perhaps quite a time after one's birth, and ceasing in terminal debility or disability, or towards some variant of the view that human dignity is merely ascribed or attributed, not without flattery and speciesist bias, to beings whose true condition is like the other animals and substances in an indifferent universe, and whose claims and acknowledgments of rights are truly no more than conditions of peace affording a working basis for a life of comfort and satisfaction of desires while we may. John Rawls's famous theory of political liberalism is that one's decision-making as a citizen or public official on matters of basic importance, uh, in all that, one's, one should never draw upon one's comprehensive worldview one's deeper reasons for assenting to the principles and propositions that inform and direct one's decision, unless those reasons are part of an overlapping consensus, in the sense that all reasonable people could be expected to agree to them. The theory is riddled with ambiguity and unprincipled exception-making, as I and many others better have shown. Anyone who thinks a proposition true thinks, or should think, that under ideal epistemic conditions, all reasonable people would assent to it. So if it refers to ideal epistemic conditions, Rawls's radically ambiguous criterion, all reasonable people can be expected to agree, excludes precisely nothing, except perhaps the opinion of the many liberals who think that value judgments are all relative and have no truth to them. But if the criterion refers to the actually prevailing epistemic state of affairs, then again it excludes little or nothing because Rawls accepts that reasonable people can and do hold some unreasonable views from which it follows that for all practical purposes there is no interestingly substantive view that all reasonable people agree to. So Rawlsian political liberalism's exclusionary principle rests on a mere double entendre and once disambiguated proves quite empty. As for the arbitrary exception-making in his theory, one can see a good example when he envisages rationalist believers confronting what would otherwise, but for their beliefs, be a consensus, helping himself to the assumption that we are inside this would-be consensus and the believer outside. Rawls says that we should simply draw upon our comprehensive worldview to declare the rationalist believer's belief either false or so undemonstrated as to be, in either case, ineligible to affect the consensus, and all this without our judging that the believers themselves are unreasonable. <coughs> so here Rawls achieves his <coughs> consensus-preserving exclusion 
by imposing on these rationalist believers a condition that he does not impose on us, who are never required by him to be able to demonstrate any of our <coughs> principles or positions to others. Rawls fails to take seriously the fact that political liberalism of his or any other kind may need to demonstrate its positions in the face of an existing or emerging anti-liberal consensus or would-be consensus, not to mention the curious and the uncommitted. We may not be able to ignore this indefinitely if large Muslim minorities, or even a bit later majorities, emerge in, say, European countries, and if these adhere for whatever reason to that important variety of Islam that teaches the legitimacy of forced conversion, expulsion of anti-Islamic views and practices from the public domain, and the capital guilt of apostasy from Islam. Where is the defense of freedom of religion, of religious, including irreligious, expression and practice to come from? Even setting aside the unreasonable self-denying ordinances proposed in Rawls's theory of liberalism, where are we to find the bases for a defense of that freedom or for a defense of the radical equality of men and women? Nowhere, I think, and certainly nowhere better than from the developed Christian teaching. About that teaching and the whole doctrine of revelation that underpins it, we have sufficient reason to be confident that its truth would be recognized under proper epistemic conditions of free and open-minded discourse, that is, of public reason properly understood and participated in, conditions that have scarcely been allowed to obtain in communities subject to Islamic rule. If one should have that confidence in relation to a confrontation between Muslim and Christian claims to, to revelatory authenticity, one should, of course, also have it in relation to confrontation between Christian claims and atheistic or agnostic denials of them, denials which proceed from a position less reasonable than the Muslim thesis that everything has its explanatory origin in the decision of the one eternal and all-powerful creator. <coughs> in this discourse between atheistic secularism and Christian secularism with transcendent foundations, what generally makes the epistemic conditions non-ideal is not lack of political freedom from coercion, but a complex of myths, images, and memories that block and distract from the Christian position and its evidences. None of this is a prediction of what in our world will be the results of political freedoms of the kind that everyone has a right to participate in. No one can foresee how the interaction between atheistic secularism, Islam, and Christian faith with its affirmation of secularity alongside the sacred, no one can foresee how this interaction will play out over this century or foretell the interaction between development of doctrine and fundamentalism or radical orthodoxy within the competing sects in Islam. Violations of rights and of the other aspects of public order are indeed the responsibility of law and government to repress with judgment, equity, and an eye to consequences. 
But our reflections and inquiries should be directed, I venture to think, not so much to speculations about the future, but to fulfilling the duty that is the foundation of religious liberty, of morality itself, and of all decent political existence and coexistence. The duty, that is one, uh, one should say, to seek the truth about God and to follow it when one has found it as best as one can judge. Thank you. Perhaps I should mention that uh, if there's any poor soul among you whose mind wandered at any particular step in the argument, the paper is available on the website of the James Madison program, and you can find the, uh, the missing step. I, uh, it is now my, my pleasure to introduce uh, our first commentator, uh, Roger Smith. Uh, I, I, I'd be surprised if there's any one working in the uh, discipline of political science who doesn't know uh, Rogers' name, if not his work. Um, he spent many years at Yale University uh, before moving to the University of Pennsylvania, where he now holds the Christopher H. Brown Distinguished uh, Professorship, and he is chair of the political science department. Uh, he's the author of many books. Um, I'll just pick one out of the group, uh, but it's quite notable, a book called Civic Ideals, Conflicting Visions of Citizenship in U.S. History, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize Award in, in 1998. <laughs> um, <clears throat> since we're here at Princeton, I, I, I think it's worth mentioning that uh, uh, as those of you who have been following the Madison program's uh, activities this year, you know that uh, Professor George, while with us most of the time, is in fact officially on leave this year and has been uh, uh, the acting director of the program is uh, Professor Keith Whittington in the politics department, and Keith is a student of Rogers Smith uh, when Rogers was at Yale. So uh, I ask you to welcome Roger Smith. Well, thank you very much, and thanks to all of you for coming out, and uh, thanks to Professor Finnis for this eloquent paper. I take it that its main point is to argue, against John Rawls and others, in favor of the propriety of making arguments from revelation in the public square as part of public reason. Now, I speak as a secular rationalist, but on this point, I am wholly on his side, and largely for the reasons he gives. All of us believe the basic tenets of our worldviews are ones that reasonable people would agree to under ideal epistemic conditions, but none of us can demonstrate that even to all reasonable people who disagree with us, given that we do not and cannot live in ideal epistemic conditions, and given the likelihood that some of us and maybe all of us are wrong in important parts of our worldview. Neither Rawls nor anyone else has any right to privilege their own less than fully demonstrated moral principles while dismissing arguments from revelation as insufficiently demonstrated to be permitted as part of public reason. 
I've argued that such exclusions are politically impossible and efforts to achieve them are counterproductive, spurring many believers to struggle to cast off an uneasy and tyrannical yoke, as John Locke contended in the first letter concerning toleration. But I also think such efforts are not just counterproductive. <coughs> they are morally wrong. They represent a claim to authority that has not been earned. My comments will therefore not argue with Finnis about the basic point of the paper, but rather pursue four implications of this point on which we fundamentally agree. Now, I suspect that I may see at least some of these implications differently than he does, differently than many of you do, but those are the questions I wish to raise for him and for all of us, not the least because on some of these points I'm unsure about my judgments of the implications, and I believe that we can benefit even in our less than ideal conditions from discussion with those with whom we have some fundamental disagreements as well as agreements. So there are four implications leading to four questions. First, in my recent book, Stories of Peoplehood, I not only criticize Rawls for claiming revelation is properly outside public reason, I go further and propose an alternative public ethos, not one of public reason at all, but one of robust democratic contestation amongst different explicitly, if at times economically expressed worldviews. I call this, fittingly enough for this setting, a Madisonian position, not because it derives directly from Madison, but because it expresses a hope like that which Madison expressed about religion specifically. The hope that if we permit robust contestation amongst different comprehensive views, the political exigencies of coalition building, along with, we hope, an element of human reason, may work to soften more extreme positions on particular issues and even to change minds over time, producing acceptable overlapping agreements on public issues without <coughs> improper counterproductive exclusions. This means that arguments from religious revelation are welcome, encouraged on, in my view, but they must expect to be challenged, criticized, not deferred to politely because it's someone's faith, not if they're being used to make arguments for public policies. And my argument goes beyond Madison in part because I do not confine it to religion. Unlike, say, modern Germany, I would permit racist worldviews as well as anti-democratic Marxist and fascist views and openly irrationalist anarchist views, all to contend, believing and hoping that the champions of democratic processes would maintain enough support to prevent the most repressive forces from gaining power or from staying in power if they temporarily did. Now, Professor Finnis and many of you might be more inclined to police the bounds of public reason than I am, perhaps to shelter religious arguments uh, from criticism, even though uh, he and I would both let in revelation to public discourse or keep it in public discourse. Um, but that's my first question uh, to him. Um, what policing do we do? Second, uh, we'd both let in revelation, or rather keep revelation in public discourse, but on what terms? In American constitutional law, this is once again a vexed question today. The constitutional text, as well as our history, suggests that there is something special about religion, especially revelatory religion, which requires special treatment by government. What kind of special treatment? At least some of the founders and many Americans since 
seem to have thought that religious beliefs as forms of ultimate belief, and particularly revelatory religious beliefs, which many saw as appeals beyond reason, <coughs> that these were especially politically important and problematic, more likely to lead to human flourishing, perhaps, but also to uncompromising, dangerous, zealous conduct. The two religion clauses of the First Amendment thus can be read as signaling that religion should be treated differently from secular moral outlooks. Religion cannot be established by the national government, so government must sometimes distance itself from religious groups more than other types of groups. But religious free exercise also cannot be impaired by national government so that religious may, the religious may get exemptions from state obligations that others do not. Now, recently... Religious advocates have argued with considerable success at the Supreme Court level that efforts to keep government from establishing religion have gone too far. They have therefore proposed an asymmetrical approach to the two clauses. I've heard Michael McConnell argue for this. Uh, in establishment clause cases, such as issues of whether public schools and public locations should be open to religious, <coughs> student, and community groups, they've proposed a principle of equal treatment. Religious groups get in on the same basis as any other as their perfectly legitimate civic organizations. Under the free exercise clause, however, these advocates suggest claims of religious conscience get special treatment. The state should defer to them in ways it should not defer to claims of secular moral conscience, since religious free exercise is specifically included in the Constitution and since religion's special status makes this unique treatment appropriate. Now, as a secular rationalist, I find this combination unfair. The religious get equal treatment under the Establishment Clause, so they share equally in all public benefits, but special treatment under the Free Exercise Clause, so they get some benefits, some exemptions from state requirements that I don't receive. But I have struggled with how to respond to this situation. The constitutional text does seem to treat religion as special, and maybe it is special, so perhaps the answer is to treat it as special under both clauses, making us especially wary of government assistance to religion and public programs, a position that can be taken to limit the role of appeals to religion in public policy debates a la Rawls, while on the other hand we should also be especially permissive <coughs> toward claims of religious conscience. But my commitment to an ethos of robust democratic contestation makes me unhappy with the first implication. Again, I would like to see religious arguments made in the public sphere as openly and as fully as, as their adherents can bring themselves to make them. But then they should be subject to contestation like any other view. Uh, I should note that in his excellent le uh, lecture yesterday, Professor Bradley indicated a way of uh, dealing with this issue of special treatment or equal treatment uh, that um, would give a kind of preferential treatment to religion under both clauses. Government could not favor one religion over another, but it could promote religion over non-religion under the Establishment Clause. Presumably, there might also be a case for special exemptions under the uh, uh, Free Exercise Clause. So rather than the special treatment which says government is especially hands-off under the Establishment Clause and gives privileges under the Free Exercise Clause, this would be special treatment government promotes under the Establishment Clause on an impartial basis, impartial amongst religions, and um, perhaps special privileges under the Free Exercise Clause. 
uh, predictably, um, uh, the uh, same worldview that leads me to reject notions that my secular moral conscience should be publicly treated as less worthy of deference than those of uh, religious uh, believers uh, makes me uncomfortable uh, with this uh, position. Uh, so uh, at present, at any rate, I would prefer a policy of equal treatment across the board. Uh, it's may be true, as Phil Hamburger argued yesterday, that the Establishment Clause is not an Equal Protection Clause, but the Equal Protection Clause is an Equal Protection Clause, and it's part of the same Constitution. And I would also claim that the First Amendment's equal commitment to freedoms of speech and the press, as well as of religion, indicate that though historical experience made the founders especially concerned about the political problems posed by religious belief, and so they felt obliged to clarify its place specifically, they did not thereby mean to give it constitutional superiority to rationalist moral perspectives or to make adherents of rationalist moral perspectives second-class citizens. But I suspect Professor Finnis might argue for something like the special status of religious view, not only philosophically, but in terms of constitutional law. That's the second question. Third, though I think an ethos of democratic contestation points to equal treatment but not special treatment for religion, there is one regard in which I might be accused of favoring distinctive, even discriminatory treatment toward religious arguments. The Supreme Court has frequently held that although a law may legitimately be based on religious reasons, it cannot be based on religious reasons alone. There must also be secular reasons that can legitimate the measure to non-believers. Sunday closing laws may please the faithful, and that's fine, but these laws also need a secular rationale as labor laws, as sources of a day of peace and leisure for the community. Laws based on secular rationales, in contrast, have not been treated by the court as also needing a religious rationale. And I admit I've always supported this doctrine, and so I might be accused of not really favoring equal treatment. My response is to say that, in principle, courts should be equally wary of laws that are supported by appeal to revelation but have no defenses in terms of practical reasoning on human nature or the human condition, and wary of laws that claim the latter sort of support but that violate the mandates of all or most of the religious traditions present in the political community. In each case, a law, even a democratically enacted law, will rest on rationales that many, although obviously less than majority, find not just imprudent but improper. And that's a highly politically problematic circumstance. It's therefore prudent. Indeed, I would say a constitutional responsibility for legislators not to enact laws that have either a purely religious basis but no secular rationale or purely secular but no religious support. I question whether laws of either sort are in fact likely really to seem to us even minimally rational before, even before we get into freedom of religion issues. But in practice, in American society, only the first sort of law, the law with a revelatory but not a rational rash, uh, uh, justification, is ever going to happen, if indeed either is ever likely to happen. Americans are overwhelmingly religious. And it is simply impossible in democratic contestation for policies to win approval that find support in no significant American religious traditions. And that includes, as Bill Galston indicated yesterday, broad though not unlimited uh, abortion rights. Democratic politics make sure that religious commitments always have some weight in American policymaking, which I think is fine, though Rawls does not. 
But in an overwhelmingly Christian nation, there is still some possibility that religious majorities will pass laws that have support from revelation but do not claim any from secular reasoning. Let me note that if I understand Professor Finnis properly, this possibility should be seen as suspect, as suspect even from a religious point of view. Practical reason, natural morality, and revelation are intertwined and mutually supportive, so there should, in fact, always be natural or secular practical reasons to give for measures supported by revelation. I think it's appropriate to ask that they be given in public lawmaking, and in their absence, I would have courts find an establishment clause violation, and this seems to me no great or unfair burden on religion. And again, I ask, would Professor Finnis agree? Finally, I ask Professor Finnis's view of one kind of religious discourse that seems to me highly questionable, if not inappropriate, from the standpoint of an ethos of robust democratic contestation. And I regret that this will seem partisan. I think I would say it about any candidate who spoke this way, but I am referring to the religious discourse that President George W. Bush has made central to his political as well as his personal life. So let me stress again, I do not criticize President Bush certainly not for being religious, for speaking about religion, which I believe he does sincerely. I don't criticize him for invoking religion or revelation in public discourse. In fact, I'm glad that he does. I think someone seeking to exercise public power should make clear to his fellow citizens how and what he thinks. My objection is that President Bush's religious discourse is structured in ways to ward off instead of inviting democratic contestation without specifying or interpreting its revelatory or natural basis, it claims to support particular controversial policies, <clears throat> controversial from religious as well as secular points of view, and it em presents embrace of those policies as a divine duty. Now, these are strong charges, so let me provide examples. Noting that I often find the President's speeches eloquent, even moving, although I disagree with many of them. He structured his remarkable inaugural address around a telling of the American story, a telling that culminated in this assertion. We are not this story's author who fills time and eternity with his purpose. Yet his purpose is achieved in our duty, and our duty is fulfilled in service of various sorts, and elsewhere he spelled out that duty prophetically. We will confront weapons of mass destruction so that a new century is spared new horrors. He later stressed in a celebrated speech to the National Endowment of Democracy that he saw a strategy of embracing an American mission to promote liberty around the world as both the plan of heaven and the best hope for progress here on earth. And in his recent speech accepting the Republican presidential nomination in New York City, he said, I believe that America is called to lead the cause of freedom in a new century. I believe this because freedom is not America's gift to the world. It is the almighty God's gift to every man and woman in this world. We have a calling from beyond the stars to stand for freedom. Now, President Bush may be right about all this. And again, I not only think he has every right to express his religious convictions in public discourse, I find it clarifying when he does so. My complaint is, in part, that he does not tell us more. He justifies some quite specific geopolitical policies by asserting that America has a calling to lead the cause of freedom worldwide in the 21st century, including striking where we suspect the presence of weapons of 
mass destructions. But many religious believers, my brother-in-law who's an Episcopalian priest, uh, thinks that these policies do not follow biblical teachings. There's a disagreement amongst religious believers, so it seems fair to ask, how does the president discern divine will in this regard? What is the basis for his religious belief? Is it scriptural? His aides say that Bush reads the Bible every day. Is it the result of direct personal revelation? He prays on a daily basis, and he's reportedly told fellow believers that he does think he has a special mission from God, but he has not offered accounts of the revelation uh, or uh, religious um, uh, rationales that justify these policies. Now, the policies may instead be a product of reasoning on the human condition today and drawing moral and policy conclusions that can be justified in secular, rational, as well as religious terms. I expect Bush would certainly argue this, and he does often offer such reasons, though his major speeches frequently culminate in these religious assertions. If his religious arguments represent his decisive reasons, then they need, I think, to be better explained and defended, not just asserted. But if they are essentially accompanying arguments directed to fellow believers, while he also gives secular grounds for non-believers, again, that seems to me a perfectly legitimate rhetorical strategy. But even in that case, I remain concerned about how Bush's particular types of religious invocations are structured, about the message they send to believers and non-believers alike. Though I understand the theological rationale for his claim, it seems to me a questionable choice to stress in a speech to one's fellow democratic citizens that we are not the authors of the American story, especially when that claim is presented by presentation of administration policies as our duty, as our calling from beyond the stars. Such arguments present religion as a substitute for accepting democratic responsibility, our own responsibility for our policy choices. In fact, they logically suggest that dissent is some sort of impiety, blasphemy, even sin. Religion here is being used, I'm afraid, not to explicate, however economically, a political leader's positions. It is being used to sanctify by assertion to issue authoritative mandates. And like John Rawls, I think it claims an authority that has not been earned through arguments in public reason and arguments and assertions that are structured to operate to discredit democratic discussion and disagreement. That, I submit, is not the proper role of revelation in the discourses in the public square. And again, I ask if Professor Finnis would agree. Thank you. Our uh, second commentator is uh, Princeton's own Eric Gregory. Eric is an assistant professor in the religion department here at Princeton. Uh, we miss him this year. He's uh, a fellow at the Erasmus Institute at the University of Notre Dame, uh, working on St. Augustine, uh, looking at uh, modern uh, issues of, of morality and ethics uh, through the lens of Augustine, and I think probably looking at Augustine through the lens of, of modern issues uh, of morality and ethics. 
uh, uh, please uh, join me in welcoming Eric Gregory. Thanks very much, Brad. It's uh, good to be back home from lovely South Bend. I noticed today that Princeton is playing my old alma mater, Harvard. It might be slightly different than the Notre Dame-Michigan game I went to a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's also an honor for me to be a part of the Madison Program events again, and particularly to uh, be on a panel with uh, two of my former teachers who I've sat in on seminars when I was in graduate school. Let me begin with an apology, or a confession, as an Augustinian would say. I was not able to join you yesterday, so I'm not sure uh, what the state of mind of this audience is, but I hope my remarks will connect with some of the larger themes of the conference. So I may not be economical in Professor Finnis's use of the word, but I will be brief. I have two lines of critical response. Though both can be taken as friendly invitations to say a bit more. The first is theological, particularly in terms of the status of the state and its relation to society. But I think it has to do with the import of the distinction between positive law and natural law. The reason I ask a theological question is because I believe Father Newhouse was right in the naked public square to suggest the crisis of the naked public square, while political, economic, social, is primarily theological. The summary question is, is the state essentially pagan, but somehow capable of, to coin a phrase, making men less immoral, and thereby securing some human goods we would not otherwise have. To put it another way, more polemically, despite his association of Protestantism with a declension narrative about Enlightenment secularism, is Professor Finnis really a Lutheran <laughs> when it comes to the state as a legal institution? I'll spell that out a little bit. The second response, which will be much shorter, is sociological, particularly in terms of what it means to theorize human rights. The summary question for this second response is, do we need a shared ethical theory to maintain a common morality and a workable political and moral ecology of human rights? Before opening these two lines of critical response, um, let me state some areas of deep agreement. Unlike dominant trends in contemporary Protestant ethics, trends that I think are finding more and more echoes in Catholic circles, both Professor Finnis and Father Newhouse, for all their reservations about contemporary culture and liberal theory, do, rightly to my mind, find value in supporting the rights-based classical, liberal, democratic experiment conceived as the constitutional rule of law. That rule of law, which I think is the great hallmark of medieval Christian political and social thought. 
Citizenship, as Father Newhouse reminded his readers, is an obligation and an opportunity. I share in that sentiment and spirit, and I think there I'm standing against a lot of dominant Protestant social ethics. Even as citizenship is an obligation, is an opportunity, I also believe Professor Finnis and Father Newhouse avoid the spurious charge of being court theologians propping up Western civilization. Professor Finnis, in his book on nuclear deterrence, made it clear that it's the Church of Christ, not the West, that carries the hopes of ancient Israel. A second affirmation, I share their sense of secularity as an essential element of Christian belief. Indeed, I think the crucial element that opened the door for an imaginative possibility of separating the political and the ecclesial, an imagination that vexed medieval Christendom, tempting it to close in on itself, refusing to admit the proper autonomy of the secular realm, but always allowed for a stance of patience, affirming what Gaudium et Spes came to call sharing all that is truly human. The secular is the shared time afforded to all humanity by the common grace of God, and liberal society can be seen as a providential gift to be constructively sustained, not marked by moral neutrality and secularism, but as a legitimate space of conflict between our higher and lower virtues. I share concerns about efforts to exclude religion from public life and the wholesale separation of law from morality. Maybe I am a naive, hopeful, young assistant professor or just bored with the narrowness of its preoccupations, but I think the tide is turning or has turned on Rawlsian accounts of public reason. And I was glad to hear Professor Smith in his argument I believe Rawlsian accounts of public reason are undemocratic, unrealizable, premised on a failed epistemology. Hopefully by the time we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Naked Public Square, we will be forced to hold a session on public reason to remind ourselves what it used to mean to determine in advance what values and vocabularies should be convincing to others in a free and open conversation about public life. That said, I don't think John Rawls is the villain of modernity. And I think despite problems with the idea of public reason, even Professor Finnis's paper shared the spirit of Rawls's claim that, quote, the zeal to embody the whole truth is at odds with democratic citizenship. Finally, this is not the place to assess the dangers of reading Thomas Aquinas primarily in terms of an account of basic goods rather than virtue or assessing whether natural law is a moral theory rather than a theological account of human action. I do believe that Professor Finnis's reconstruction has done much to revitalize natural law thinking in ways that emphasize the richness of practical reason and the centrality of freedom to human flourishing. 
But you'll be glad to know my response does not wade into the deep waters of Aquinas' interpretation. So now, my two critical responses. For Christians, the incarnation is God's public reason. We rational creatures with bodies beaten back by what Augustine called our false mode of resting in the perverse sweetness of the world, need visible wisdom to begin our journey back home, even as we come to love this world. Here, from book one of De Doctrina, how did he come except that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us? It is as when we speak, In order that what we are thinking may reach the mind of the listener through the fleshly ear, that which we have in mind is expressed in words and is called speech. Jesus Christ, I take it, is God's speech, God's visible witness, the highest good that is also the common good that elevates us into participation in the divine life, a witness that continues in the preaching of the church representing Jesus as constituted in word and sacrament, wooing all of humanity with the sweet, visible aroma of the Eucharist. The New Testament, notably St. Paul and Luke, make a big deal that all of this happened in the public realm, not hidden in some esoteric knowledge or contemplative inner voice. And Professor Finnis points to this focal sense of publicity, of revelation, as the heart of his reflections today. In his book on Aquinas, he calls this communication from God radically public and social in its making. This sense of public revelation, he argues, finds evidentiary force in the moral attractiveness of Jesus, a moral attractiveness that he compares to Muhammad in uh, the online version of the paper. While not self-evident, nor deducible from the self-evident, the Christian narrative is rationally foundational to a sound intellectual life and, as Professor puts it in his book, to fully appropriate public social institutions such as universities and states. At this point in his lecture, Professor Finnis reminded us of the church's powerful and articulate declaration of religious liberty, or on religious liberty. So far, so good. Now, here's the question. Since the good of relating appropriately to a divine being can be postulated without being affirmed, and inquiry into this good is an exercise in public reason, What does this entail in terms of the state's activities in relation to this basic good? Professor Finnis' account of Aquinas on the state is controversial. His Aquinas is not the Aquinas taught most undergraduates, as evidenced by his claim that Aquinas' thought is not readily distinguishable from John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. His Aquinas sounds a lot like Augustine, or to be More provocative, what Lutherans thought Augustine said. The state is ordered to continence, not virtue. 
Now, I think this view implicitly offers a third alternative to the debate between liberalism and communitarianism. Here we have a normative political community oriented to a public good, adjudicated by just laws, but limited in its application. The state is instrumental. The state is conceived as a legal institution of judgment. Law does not promote true virtue or even inculcate virtues in its citizens. Rather, the state orders the public good, primarily, it seems, through promoting an imperfect tranquility, proscribing specifically egregious acts, external acts of injustice, and to the best extent possible, providing the minimal conditions for human flourishing. Positive law is a cultural artifact susceptible to all the sins of cultural artifacts and therefore best focused on limiting harm rather than promoting the good. The state secures the space necessary for religion and the individual's pursuit of the life of virtue, the excellences that a liberal society makes possible, respecting the capacities of individuals as moral agents to order their lives accordingly to their best aspiration, as he ended his talk, and also to allow citizens to debate things relevant to this mortal life. The polis is concerned with the shared moral values appropriate only to the penultimate. Politics is not about soul-making. There's no radical separation of law and morality, but there is a sphere of individual responsibility where the public good is not at stake. Religious matters, Professor Finnis claims, transcend the sphere of the state. But is there something special about religion for jurisprudence? And this, I think, also dovetails with Professor Smith. Is the Christian church nothing other than a voluntary society in the eyes of the state? Should the Catholic Church, for example, since it promotes religion, just as universities promote knowledge, be eligible for tax-exempt status? If so, why? Is it appropriate for a nation to publicly recognize that its laws stand under judgment and therefore profess that the state is under God or to recognize its Christian heritage in a new constitution as an argument to deny admission to non-Christian nations? If so, why? Just to put another issue on the table, since the civil law may permit actions that are malum in se, is it plausible for a defender of someone with Professor Finnis's views to argue that prudence suggests the state should withdraw itself from the legal regulation of sexual partnerships and confine itself to the contractual regulation of inheritance benefits? thereby clarifying the difference between a Catholic sacramental view of marriage from the pagan state's view. If not, why not? That's not my argument. That's an argument I recently heard from a very prominent Catholic intellectual. My confusion, and I stand to be corrected, stems from the suggestion that the state does not just recognize the claim rights of religious liberty, but it also promotes the basic good of religion. Theologically, the question would be, is the state pagan, as Anabaptists and sometimes Bardians say, 
unable to respond to the witness of the gospel, not part of a created nature that's perfected by grace? Or is the state under the lordship of Christ and related to the order of redemption, as Calvinists like to say? Or some third category of merely secular, belonging only to this passing age? If it is merely secular, as I think he holds, then what is the state's relation to our final end? Nothing. There will be no political governments in heaven. There will be no mediating institutions in heaven. There will probably be no intermediate principles in heaven. But the government seems to know something about religion because it's a basic good. There seems a tension between the account of state and the account of religion. Does the state only protect religion or can the state ever promote it? A second, much shorter critical response. Professor Finnis argues that natural reason teaches that religious truth is so important that coercion is wrong. Persons have claim rights correlative to the government's duty not to commit that wrong. Revelation secures this teaching by introducing the notion that God created human beings with dignity in God's image. He expresses doubt that without revelation, this radical equality would not have become practically a ground for equality and basic rights. He speculates that if set aside, equality will not be maintained. Without revelation, people gravitate towards some version of the view that dignity is variable, dignity is waxing and waning, dignity is something merely ascribed and attributed. My question is, how are we to take these remarks are they pragmatic, speculative? Are they psychological remarks about the sociology of group adherence to the idea of equality? Or are they to be taken in a more robust sense? You need God to justify human rights rather than merely the rights of citizens. If they are pragmatic, I share his view that it is hard to imagine the development of human rights discourse without the Christian tradition. If they are more theoretical, I worry that he is placing too much value on the need for a sheer theory of human rights in order to maintain common morality. The fact of pluralism does not lead me to skepticism about morality or to relativism about the truth. I am a moral realist. But the power of my own self-deceptive emotional interests counsel me to always be on the lookout for potentially ideological abuse of my favorite ethical theory. Christians are not immune to the distortions of rationalization that Professor Finnis outlines so well. But I also think very few people are skeptical about morality itself. Shouldn't a natural lawyer think that moral disagreement is a a sign of deep moral agreement? Shouldn't a natural lawyer trust the demos to play fair in the sandbox, ever ready to be surprised by virtue in strange places, even from those holding really wrong-headed ethical theories? There are a host of human rights theories, theories of equality, that do not invoke the image of God and I think are reasonable. 
But the real question is, do we need consensus on our justificatory theories of rights in order to maintain a world committed to radical equality and basic rights? Where do we find the basis for this radical equality? Professor Finnis claims nowhere better than the developed Christian teaching. I wonder, however, given the world in which we live today, we might better say, wherever we can find it. We don't need to agree on our theories of morality in order to sustain democratic practices. Affirming political pluralism does not require pluralism in one theory of value. For Christians, in any case, we're not interested in protecting ethical theories, but the neighbor that comes our way. Christians are worried about the sorts of communities a liberal society tends to encourage, the sort of social loss that I think John Rawls himself admitted and knew, problems that I think are addressed by kinds of liberal perfectionism in contemporary political theory. With Augustine, I try not to expect too much or too little from politics. I think it's a moral enterprise. We can work for a society with better loves than the ones we have now, we can never expect true justice. All political communities fall short, but they do fall short to different degrees. The better objects of our love, which entails recourse to justice and excellence, the better the society. Religious traditions should help liberals imagine a better liberalism, one in which politics is not merely what the government does or a satisfaction of our material needs, but solidarity with fellow citizens over our common objects of love. In the end, Aristotle may have thought that you need a morally upright culture to be moral. Christians, whether Thomist, Augustinian, perhaps Lutheran, or pietistic Methodists, should think otherwise. There's always already grace that's something that delivers us from more than our capacity for sound reasoning. It's not a cheap, quick fix, but it's found in the hard training, directing, and correcting of virtue that Christians discern in the law of Christ. Thank you. We uh, have uh, weighty matters uh, under discussion here, and I'd like us to take the time to, uh, to, to discuss them uh, as needed. Uh, before opening um, this up to questions uh, from, from the audience, I would like to invite uh, Professor Finnis uh, to respond, if he would like, to uh, his, his uh, interlocutors. You can take, uh, as, uh, as far as I'm concerned, as long as you like. <laughs> Robbie says 10 minutes, so. <laughs> Not that I want to be anti-democratic. No, 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 no. <laughs> like up to 10 minutes. <laughs> well, there's lots of uh, wonderful questions to get one's teeth into there. I I'm going to start at the end and work back work backwards uh, for, for methodological reasons. Uh, bec 
because uh, the last question that Eric uh, raised, the second question, was was whether one needs a theory uh, and in what sense, say, equality is securely knowable without revelation. So there are really two things going on there, one about theory and one about, one about revelation. Let me just state the basic position that, I, that I'm coming from here, which is that, that there are truths of natural reason. Uh, they include uh, practical principles, as I call them, uh, directing us towards forms of good that are formulated in terms of oughts and so forth. But they also include uh, principles which are not practical but in themselves theoretical or speculative in, in the medieval sense of the term uh, about what is the case uh, and obviously that includes such matters as are all human beings equal in dignity and if so why and in what, in what ways and so forth. Uh, also questions about the character of action and so forth. In, in respect of all these truths of, of natural reason, that is to say matters on which a correct judgment can, under ideal epistemic conditions, be reached uh, by anyone, so natural, naturally. Uh, there's, the, there's the first element of the, the proposition. There are such truths of, of natural reason. They are accessible. But the second proposition is they can be known more clearly and more securely by revelation. Now, that's the teaching uh, that you find right in the very first uh, que question of St. Thomas's Summa Theologiae, and therefore, of course, it represents a kind of assimilation by him of the whole tradition. Uh, that's to say the tradition going back to Christ, but also the tradition going back behind Christ, and that means in two directions, the prophetic tradition of Israel, but also the, as it were, quasi-revelatory tradition of, of uh, Plato and Aristotle. The position that uh, is then uh, taken up and formulated dogmatically by the First Vatican Council, truths of natural reason can be known more clearly and more securely by revelation. They don't cease to be truths of natural reason by virtue of the fact that they're now knowable by revelation. So they are both natural and theological religious, if you like. And this fundamental overlap uh, renders problematic a, a very great deal of what is commonly said in the debate about the nature of religion in the public square and, and so forth. Tr one and the same truth can be both religious, that is to say, as known by revelation, and non-religious, secular, rationalist, all these things, uh, in as much as knowable by natural reason. And that, I think, solves or dissolves a good many questions. To some extent, it also helps us understand Eric Gregory's first question, which was about the, the character of the state. Now, there are the many, many issues that are involved. Uh, if it turns out that Luther uh, adopted some of Aquinas' positions, uh, that's fine. Uh, Johnny, Johnny come lately doesn't make the original positions Johnny's. Uh, th there are contested questions, and I can see scowling faces amongst my friends uh, who think of Aquinas as more like Aristotle than I do. 
when I pugilistically say, as I do in the book, that uh, on a certain fundamental question, uh, Aquinas' position is hard to distinguish from John Stuart Mill's, uh, I'm trailing my coat, and many have uh, in gleefully jumped on it, as I uh, hoped they would. Nonetheless, it seems to me true. If Mill it also tags along, like Luther, that's fine by me. Uh, Aquinas isn't an Aristotelian who thinks of the state as godlike. He, in my view, properly, under, properly read, it's hard to read him because he, he wanted to promote Aristotle uh, and, and so re gives you a rendering of Aristotle in which uh, it's hard to see what uh, Aquinas is asserting as his own. Uh, Aquinas wanted to distinguish his position as the Christian position must be distinguished from Aristotle's. Uh, and the state is not, as uh, Eric uh, remarked, something we will find in heaven. It is, in fact, not a basic good. The political community or life in political community is not itself a basic good in the way that uh, life in marriage and family around marriage is a basic good. Sociality, friendship, including the friendship of the political community, is a basic good. The political community is included in a basic good, in one realization of that basic good, the one that we need in, in this world. The political community, the state, is instrumental to, to basic good. And uh, its remit is justice. Justice is a virtue. Uh, a proper ethical theory is a virtue theory. A proper political theory is a virtue theory. The virtue around which the state clusters is the virtue of justice. That must be inculcated. The promotion of justice is not a minimal exercise. The state is not a minimal uh, enterprise. Its embrace of the common good is vastly uh, uh, elaborate and extensive. Un has an unrivaled extension because to do justice to children adequately uh, you need to know what are the good forms of life. So the state needs an accurate knowledge of what really is good for human beings and one of those aspects of human good, another basic aspect, is a right relationship to the transcendent creator and so religion uh, is a basic good to be acknowledged by the state. But the state's remit remains not getting us to heaven, but doing justice in this world. Well, much more could be said about that, but that, I think, uh, resolves a good many of, of the issues. Uh, when George Bush appeals to providence, uh, he doesn't, I think, use the word, but uses words like calling, uh, much that he, perhaps everything that was quoted uh, by Roger Smith uh, could be understood as simply affirming that inasmuch as a particular political position or program or policy seems to him to be true, he is thereby, by its truth as morally sound and here and now needed, uh, that, that truth is, has given, is given a further depth and urgency for him by being uh, understandable by him as... Uh, part of the divine uh, providential scheme for the doing of good in this world, the promotion of a good world as opposed to a bad one. 
uh, if it meant uh, that he received some sort of private revelation from God that this kind of expedition or whatever is uh, the one that God calls for here and now, that would be indeed a cause for uh, uh, inquiry and uh, anxiety in as much as we're not privy to this revelation and have good reason to doubt that he is, as President of the United States, uh, likely to be a recipient of such uh, a, a peculiar benefit. And I myself doubt uh, many claims that such and such is providential. I strongly doubted it when the Archbishop, the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster, descended the steps of the plane at Heathrow after the election of John Paul I and said this is a providential election and we look forward to many years of, uh, of this, <laughs> this Pope's <laughs> government. Um, insight into providence is not something that we are gra granted. However, we have a duty to seek for our vocation and try to discern it. With the thought there is a providential plan of which we see only a fragment, but not, I think, any claim that this has a status in, in uh, public reason or public uh, decision-making. Uh, so can laws be based, this is the third question now, I've just dealt with the fourth of, of Roger Smith, can laws be based uh, on a religious reason only or do they need a rational or secular reason as well? Uh, he, Roger, identified the, uh, the answer that I would give uh, already. There should always be a rational as, as well as a r religious basis. That's the, the classic um, Catholic position as articulated in recent documents as well as old ones, uh, which I was in a certain sense de-emphasizing uh, this morning in order to promote uh, the, the case for acknowledging uh, revelation as a source of uh, public discourse. But it's, it's, it is, of course, the, the classic Christian position uh, whether Lutheran as well, I know not, uh, that, uh, that all the truths of um, moral revelation are also truths of natural reason. Uh, on the, on the, uh, the, the, the amendment which deals with, equal equal, uh, with non-establishment as well as uh, free freedom of religion, uh, I have a kind of... Uh, immediate attraction towards the position which Roger Smith identified as the sort of standard one. Now, if that's uh, against the one that Jerry Bradley is promoting, I, I hesitate to step in. This, this, is a, this is a debate on which I'm far from up to, up to speed. I start, however, with just this, with just this thought, that inasmuch as uh, religion is entitled to a kind of slack uh, so that its free exercise is, is protected by the state. So, uh, too, or included in religion is a deep uh, atheistic or agnostic uh, but deeply conscientious uh, worldview held conscientiously as a worldview. So, as I say at the appropriate point when I'm talking about holding a place for religion in the characterization of human flourishing in natural law and natural rights, an instance of the religion that I'm holding a place for at that point in the argument is Sartrean existentialism as, as taught by Sartre in his 
late early post-war pamphlet is existentialism, a humanism, in which this is not simply uh, an expression or conceived or promoted or to be accepted as a, an expression of an arbitrary will to do, to enter onto some sort of uh, agreeable course of action, but is a stance before the universe, an, an openness to, to the truth about man's place, the human place in the cosmos, whatever that truth, welcome or unwelcome, may be. Would I police the bounds of uh, uh, action? Would I have the state uh, police uh, action in order to protect religious views from criticism? No. Uh, just uh, just uh, the criteria are just those that are stated in Dignitatis Humana, in my view. The, the, the state's mission is to protect public order, the rights of others. That includes, that includes, as I point out in a footnote uh, in the article, the rights uh, of people not to be uh, deceived by deceptive, uh, fraudulent propaganda. But, and there are many problems about defining, defining that. But in principle, the state's rights are limited to, the state's authority is limited to protecting rights uh, and public order and public morality, not to protect religious views from, from criticism. Uh, whether I would come down on the German side uh, in outlawing from public life certain forms of, of uh, uh, political belief and action or on Roger Smith's uh, optimistic uh, side, uh, believing that the democratic contention will always win out even if temporarily the, the Nazis gain power, is another matter. It is another matter. Well, um, we've run over time. Um, I think uh, perhaps we can take two questions, and then we'll, we'll uh, 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 call it a morning. Uh, and of course, our first questions in the Madison program always go to students from wherever you hail. Are there any questions from students? Yes, ma'am. Well, all one can say about the, the uh, about ideal epistemic conditions is they're the conditions in which people, which in which any and every given person attending to a question, is free from uh, all those uh, uh, beliefs which uh, block and render hard to appropriate, hard to assess the particular arguments that that person is is hearing. Okay, so, so it depends on the, what, what argument you're dealing with, what kinds of beliefs, which let's say they're, they're mistaken beliefs or half-truths and so on, which kinds of half-truths render it very difficult for that person to hear the proposition and assess it accurately. All those conditions are such that we say they're non-ideal. So in principle, ideal epistemic conditions uh, would include that 
that in considering this question, whatever this question is, I've got a, a massive database of true beliefs on a whole lot of other questions which somehow impact on this question. And that, of course, would be true of each of the questions that constitute the database of true beliefs. So uh, it's not easy to just, you know, create and bring about. Uh, it's, it's truly ideal, and we never approach it in this life except uh, at best asymptotically, getting closer and closer to it but never, never reaching it. Uh, which are the ones that particularly block the, the Christian proclamation? Well, uh, you know, everyone can uh, th think of their own favorite example. But you know, the history of Christianity, as it was taught to you wherever you heard it, uh, probably mistaught, uh, emphasized this, that, this way, that way, its complexity, its, uh, its good sides and its bad sides, muddled up in, in the accounts that one given. What, the myths that one, that one brought, you know, were learned in, in, uh, in school, you know, the medievals thought the world was flat. I, I, it took me, I, I, was, I was the age of 57, and a long time, you know, Christian, medievalist, and so forth, and whatever, before I realized that that which I'd learned was totally false. All medieval people thought the world was round. But I never met anybody amongst my friends who thought that in the Middle Ages people thought the world was round. I haven't subsequently met anyone who didn't think that the medievals thought the world was flat. So we were in the grip of of non-ideal epistemic conditions. And that, that one falsehood about the Middle Ages has, you know, you multiply that by many, but just that one by itself has a huge impact on how we hear that religion which was dominant in the Middle Ages. Uh, the question was whether ideal epistemic conditions can can include what Chris Wolf just called uh, moral conditions, by which I take it he means that this, the personal, uh, as it were, dispositions of the hearer, of the inquirer, and of course they, they certainly do, that the inquirer is not consciously or unconsciously biased by hope that this will turn out to be the answer rather than that, and, and so forth, in many, many different ways. Yep. Other students first. There are very, some very non-student hands. Masters. <laughs> Scott, no Scott Well, I don't know about trouble, but we, we can think he's uh, mistaken. Uh, first of all, uh, on the first part of your question, uh, one has an obligation to uh, uphold and act according to the truth as one sees it. Uh, that includes truths which one holds, both because they seem reasonable and because they have been attested by what one counts as, as revelation. 
And if one doesn't see it as reasonable apart from revelation, but still one has confidence in the revelation, then that's still sufficient reason to judge that to be true. And if one judges it to be true, then it's a, a sufficient basis for action. Now, of course, in, in political life, uh, action is by cooperation. Uh, and so one has to bring along to the decision-making process all those who may not share that ground for, for belief, although they may share the whole or part of, of the belief uh, in, in question. The position that uh, because I hold this as a matter of faith, I therefore can't promote it as a matter of public policy is just confused, is just mistaken. Uh, if he means to deny that his Catholic faith, let's take that as his position, uh, on uh, early human life, has, if he takes if he intends to deny that that has any rational basis, if he thinks, so to speak, with part of his mind that it doesn't have any basis except Catholic teaching, then he's, uh, he's got a problem. Uh, what, what status as truth does he grant this? If he really has faith, he still should accept it as really true that the unborn are what Catholic faith teaches they are. They have that status. So he should be prepared to act on it. Uh, including in, in political life, uh, whether he can bring his uh, colleagues along to the party uh, on that basis is a, is a political issue. But just saying it's a matter of faith, therefore it's not a matter of public policy, is, is confused. Can we, can, can we take one more? This is too good to stop. Oh, yes, sure. Rogers, would you like this reply? I uh, just want to say that uh, although... Um, I'm not here to defend Senator Kerry's position on uh, this or any other issue. Uh, it is, uh, uh, I think, too quick to um, assume that uh, the only relevant uh, position that he has is a religious belief in regard to abortion and that, therefore, he must be saying that he can never act on the basis of his faith in public life, which I don't understand to be his uh, position. Rather, uh, it is a uh, coherent view to feel that there are a variety of fundamental moral principles that are binding on us whose implications may not point precisely in the same direction. And uh, how you deal with those conflicts um, is something one can conscientiously and reasonably uh, wrestle with and come out with different results. You may feel that uh, your uh, faith doesn't justify you as a public official uh, committed to the rule of law in uh, uh, violating what are uh, admittedly recent and controversial but nonetheless constitutional standards and policies supported by uh, much of the electorate. You may feel that there are principled reasons uh, for not doing that. That combination may not be persuasive. We can argue about it, but uh, the uh, I don't think his position is accurately described as either saying, because it's faith, I cannot act on it in public life, or uh, this is my faith, uh, but um, uh, for political reasons I choose to ignore it in public life. There is a wrestling with conflicting principles on a very difficult issue uh, that um, uh, I think conscientious people should respect. Just one second. I, I think the power of the question really actually is, and this might be an interesting contrast with the way Professor Smith was talking about George Bush, is that the worry about um, 
people, particularly in public office, holding private religious reasons that motivate them and not clarifying them is that there's a kind of potential duplicity. Question of that, practically, I'm not sure this is actually the case in the one you suggest. Uh, I mean, maybe a political rhetorical move for him to suggest that there are religious reasons that actually motivate him, but I'm not clear whether or not it's better to have those on the table because I thought the whole point of democratic contestation was to allow religious reasons to be in full public view, particularly of public office holders or seekers. So in which case, it would seem the power of the question is, should we expect more forthcoming religious reasons from, say, for example, President Kerry, uh, potential President Kerry? I, I, um, think, I think that's a fair demand. <laughs> what seems to be mysterious about his position, though, is that he seemed to put forward the proposition, this is a matter of faith, this is my belief, as a ground for not acting on it. Right, I did right, not right, understand right, him right. to say that. But, well, I may have misunderstood, yeah. but that's not... Yeah. Uh, he said it is a matter of faith. The fact that it's a matter of faith alone is not the end of the question. That's different than saying because yeah, it's a matter sure. of faith, I cannot act on it. Yeah. Uh, indeed, uh, his positions on a whole range of issues, I'm sure, are influenced by uh, moral commitments from religious traditions, as are those of most political actors, inevitably. So to say that anything that's a matter of faith, I therefore can't act on it in public life, you know, you wouldn't be against um, uh, uh, much of the criminal code. So. Uh, you wouldn't be able to support much of the criminal code. So that's not his position. Right, and, and I think Kerry has appealed to publicly available religious principles that may be separate from the way Bush sometimes makes reference to his private experience of God. So those would be, I also think, a, a difference. I, th I think um, we're going to have to call it a morning. We return here at 1.45. Please thank our guests. <laughs>